are listening to another episode of the Coach's Circle Podcast, brought to you by LifeCoachPath.com. Our goal is to explore all the different ways you can craft your own career in the fields of coaching, wellness, and mental health. Each episode features guests who offer an authentic perspective on their own unique career path and explores ways you might begin to craft your own. For more information on who we are and what we do, visit www.lifecoachpath.com. And now, here's your host, Brandon Baker. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Coaches Circle podcast. Today's special guest is Dr. Laura Mugley. She is a licensed clinical psychologist with offices in New York and Florida. Hi, Dr. Mugley. Welcome to the show. Hi, everybody. Hi, Brandon. Thanks for having me on. It's nice to be here. Absolutely. Um, I, I kind of mentioned to you before we went on the air that we haven't had anybody on the show who specialized in ADHD. And a lot of listeners to the podcast, a lot of um, you know people looking to get into this field, whether in the capacity of therapy or coaching, um, this is definitely a topic of interest uh, for, mm -hmm. for a lot of people. And you happen to do both. Mm -hmm. um, the, the counseling side and the coaching side, right? So yeah. yeah, I just wanted to start us off with some background, um, on you and kind of how you got involved in, in psychology in general. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely. Um, one of my areas of specialty is ADHD. And, um, as we were talking, you know, before we started the, the podcast, I also do work with individuals who struggle with things like anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. But at a, as I was saying earlier, is that a lot of times, you know, ADHD can co-occur with an anxiety disorder and very often can occur with obsessive compulsive disorder. And, and also, I, yeah, so I don't like to look at the person, separate them out. I like to look at the person holistically. So even if they are struggling with ADHD-related issues, they may have some difficulties with anxiety. They may also feel down sometimes, but then we don't have to diagnose them with depression. We just sort of need to process those things and figure out what's going on and what the best, I guess, plan of action is for either the therapy or coaching, whichever direction we're going in, I guess I would say. So. Right. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think the I think the brain is much too complex to look at anything kind of in a vacuum, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, exact, exactly, exactly, um, 100%. And people don't live in a vacuum, right? I mean, it's always a combination of things that are affecting someone's life um, yeah. at, at any given moment. So yeah, so it's hard to just separate that one thing and say, oh, it's only that. <laughs> I think yeah. that's overly simplistic. So in my right. opinion, at least. Absolutely. So, yep. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I wanted to, well, first, before we get into the specific work you do, something that I like mm -hmm. to start off each episode is with, um, I guess, some more personal background as to how you first got involved in psychology. And um, I think it's always kind of interesting to hear that backstory because a lot of the listeners of the show are in that phase right now in what you might consider your backstory, right? Um, <laughs> right. And so, yeah, if you can just give some some kind of background as to how you became interested in psychology in general. Sure. Um... Well, I was always interested in human behavior and also understanding the brain and I guess the brain behavior relationship and just, I guess, what makes us who we are. 
Um, but, but that said, I came about clinical psychology in a little bit of a roundabout way because I actually started off with a master's in organizational psychology, which is, or you can call it industrial psychology. Mm -hmm. So that's more the psychology in a business and industry, uh, looking at career development for employees. Um, there's also coaching programs that somebody who works within the organizational psychology realm within a company, but the focus is more within a company and a business, not as much on the individual, so to speak. I mean, the individuals, obviously, but also sort of strategically, how is the company doing with um, employee development, career development, right. et cetera. The company's kind of the big picture, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so I, I did work in that field for a little while, and then I started to feel kind of unfulfilled. And I said, okay, well, maybe I would like to actually focus on the individual. And that's when I applied to uh, one doctoral program only, and I got in um, <laughs> and uh, decided to pursue a clinical degree and in psychology. And then, and then I kind of fell into neuropsychology, which is another uh, part of my practice where I do assessments and testing, which was also which also piggybacks off my interest of that brain behavior relationship. So kind of understanding what is going on cognitively with us and how that really affects everything that we do. So. Right. So yeah, here I am now. Right. Perfect. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I, I love it. I love how you kind of always knew that you had an interest in kind of how the mind works. And mm -hmm. you found yourself kind of in that general space, but you realized that maybe it needed to be tweaked a bit. And um, maybe it, you weren't quite in the correct niche within the kind of psychology umbrella, right? Um, with regards to the industrial psychology. And mm -hmm. yeah, and I think it's informative and, and helpful for anybody who might kind of have a feeling that maybe mm -hmm. they're in the same spot. You know, like I, I have heard guests on the show talk about how they were in nursing, uh, for example, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, because they loved helping others, right? And mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. they realized eventually that that wasn't quite the capacity that they wanted to practice that that skill or, or that that right. love for helping others and so i think it's an important that's why i love to start the show this way is to offer as many of those kind of mini stories kind of like three minute bios <laughs> because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think it helps give perspective to somebody in that same situation well um, yeah and there's lots of ways to help people too i would add as well so yeah absolutely. so yeah for sure so, yeah. All right. Yeah. So I wanted to uh, discuss a little bit more about the work you're doing today. So mm -hmm. you did mention, mm -hmm. obviously, that um, one of the areas of focus that you that you have is ADHD and depression mm -hmm. and anxiety. So mm -hmm. I guess just starting off with ADHD, I know I it's it's hard to talk about all of it at once, and I know that it's it's tempting to kind of see them as separate things. But mm -hmm. just for the sake of simplicity, starting off with ADHD, um, I guess one of the you know. Again, full disclosure, I'm, I'm not a psychologist. However, yeah, I, okay. I um, kind of have this understanding, I guess, that people sometimes maybe overdiagnose uh, or maybe too easily um, think that either they or maybe their children have some form of ADHD. And I'm sure you see this all the time in, mm -hmm. in your own practice. So I guess I wanted to start off by asking, what would you say is the, um, I guess, most telltale sign that it is a true, I guess, case of ADHD? And what are some of the most, I guess, common ways that it's falsely assumed that maybe a child does have it when they well, don't? Well, yeah. Um, 
I guess I would also add that oftentimes there, there is, there can be, yes, an overdiagnosis of people also just self-diagnosing themselves with ADHD, but there also is the other thing that happens, especially with girls and women is that oftentimes girls and women go undiagnosed or misdiagnosed mm. for many, many years until later adulthood, or they're in my office and they're in high school or college or their professionals at this point, and they finally get properly diagnosed with ADHD when they had been previously labeled or diagnosed, I should say, as depressed, depressed or anxious. Right. Um, because with women and girls, it does, it doesn't present itself in the same way as it does with let's say younger boys, like boys often tend to be more hyperactive, whereas girls tend to be, you know, the, they, they behave well, but they might daydream outside the window or they might miss things. So then they, and they keep it together and they internalize versus externalize. So, so then they get noticed later on in life and, and it, and it can really take a toll on a lot of these women's self-esteem when they feel like, oh my gosh, why didn't I have this answer such a, so many years ago. And now I finally understand what's been missing from the puzzle, if that makes sense. Um, and then as far as is is misdiagnosing, I mean, that's why, you know, a proper intake and, and or some some type of testing, um, which can be very informative um, to finding out what is actually really going on. Because, again, as we said, there's so many things going on with with a child, with a young adult, with an adult. So being able to sort of parcel out and tease apart, you know, what part is the the depression, what part is, you know, the anxiety and those types of things going on can be very helpful in avoiding misdiagnosis. But, you know, I think, you know, for example, an anxiety disorder could be misdiagnosed as ADHD. You know, the, the kid is so anxious that he can't focus, um, but the root cause is not ADHD. The root cause is anxiety, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when you see a client, because what I guess what, what I like to do on the show is really kind of uh, take a deeper dive into what those mm-hmm. sessions actually look like. I think that's yep. probably the most helpful for anybody listening that is considering doing this, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I guess, instead of speaking in generalities, right? So, no, no, it's okay, yeah. Yeah, when you're in a client session, let's say a parent comes to you and says, I, I suspect that my child might be suffering from ADHD, right? Um, mm-hmm. how do you, what, what kinds of questions, or I guess, do you even ask questions? What, what procedure do you take to make that determination and kind of tease apart? It's like a knot that you have to mm-hmm. kind of tease mm-hmm. apart. Like mm-hmm. what is really the root cause? So can mm-hmm. you take us through a little bit of that process? Yeah, of course. Um, and, and I, I would also like to add that the process looks different for, uh, kids, to some extent, not entirely different, but um, obviously kids are a minor too, right? So there's a lot more involvement with the parents. Um, and, and again, it also depends on the child's age as well um, when they're coming to see me. But basically the process would would go some, some, you know, along the lines of this is where the parent would obviously reach out uh, and say to me, you know, we think our child has ADHD and or I should add a lot of the... Um, 
parents and children that I've worked with over the years, they are already coming to me with a previous diagnosis of ADHD or the parents already know that something's going on mm -hmm. or someone, you know, one of their teachers has been concerned about X, Y, and Z with the kid and has pointed it out to the parents. And so then the parents are kind of reaching out to me. So fortunately, a lot of the parents that I've been able to work with are, are really very savvy already themselves. Um, right. And, um, you know, finding the right treatment for their, for their children. But, but basically I would have an intake with the parents and, you know, asking lots of questions about what their concerns are, uh, developmental history, educational history, um, learning disabilities, tutoring, um, again, ADHD related symptoms, which would be things like, um, weaknesses in executive functioning, which I can explain what that is, if that's helpful, mm -hmm. um, working memory, um, those types of things. And then, and then I also have forms that the parents have to fill out themselves, a variety of different forms, forms specifically to assess ADHD-related symptoms, forms to assess for depression, anxiety, um, also for ADHD and other things. And then I also will ask the kid, the child, to also fill out these forms themselves. And then more often than not, I would also have a neuro, I would engage in psychoeducational or, or neuropsych assessment with the child where I would be assessing their IQ, uh, educational functioning, and also cognitive, um, more cognitive neuropsych categories like executive functioning, for example, to sort of be able to tease apart like we were talking, okay, so what part is you know, is there anxiety going on? Is there some, you know, executive functioning weaknesses and attention issues? And, and is there a learning disability or is there not? Because also sometimes you can see not, you know, there is ADHD can also co-occur co -occur with a learning disability as well. So, right, right. Yeah. So my immediate thought when I hear that is, well, I guess two, two, I guess, unrelated questions, but the, the first, no, okay. the first is, when you do that assessment, I'm guessing that the result that comes out of that is usually a blend of a lot of these different issues instead of, you know, 100% one thing and 0% the other thing, right? It's usually a combination of things or how does that typically uh, turn out once you finish that assessment? Yeah, well, um, so so a lot of so after I finish the assessment, you have to obviously score the data right. and then you also so you have to take the the data that you gather from the actual assessments, and then based on the background information and history, self-report measures, and sort of, it's kind of like a, a puzzle that you're putting together. And mm -hmm. that is the part about it that I like, because it's, it's, I'm an investigator. I'm kind of looking to see what things hang together, if that makes sense. So- you're putting together um, a story, basically. Ex exactly, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and, and is there a significant amount of, let's say I'm making this up, issues with executive functioning and tension that warrant a diagnosis of ADHD? And or is there enough stuff going on with anxiety to also warrant a diagnosis or not? And then based on the diagnosis, um, which is important, especially for children, because we need to make sure that they get the services they need in right. a school setting or whatever kind of setting they need, not, not because we want to label people. It's not really for that. I mean, it's really more to make sure that they're getting whatever they need, like if they you know, need tutoring for reading or if they need an ADHD Absolutely. coach or whatever they might need. And then the recommendations are based on uh, how all this information kind of 
um, pans out, basically, if that makes sense. Yeah, so. yeah I'm, I'm all too familiar with the need for some kind of diagnosis, because without getting into too many details, uh, my daughter had an issue with something different. It wasn't related to any mm-hmm. of this, but mm-hmm. um, and it was to the point where she was not able to focus in school unless this was taken mm-hmm. care of. And mm-hmm. the only way that we can kind of maybe cut, like maybe kind of uh, change the rules as to how she was being, um, I guess, what kind of attention was being paid to her in in school Mm -hmm. um, was to have some kind of diagnosis from a doctor or else she would basically have to do everything exactly like all the other kids, right? Right. In terms of her her eating schedule and and things of that nature. And so, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was related to food issues. And so, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, having a diagnosis is, I know when, especially when you have this understanding that the brain isn't in a vacuum and things mm-hmm. aren't a hundred percent this and zero percent that it can be kind mm-hmm. of, it can seem a little bit um, counterintuitive to put this focus on diagnostics, right? Mm-hmm. Because the whole mm-hmm. idea of diagnostics <laughs> is kind of that brain in a vacuum idea, but, mm-hmm. uh, but in the reality that we live in, yeah, uh, that, that does make sense that sometimes you do need to provide that. Yeah. And it's really just a guide. I mean, that's yeah. how I look at it. I mean, mm-hmm. that may not be how everyone looks at it, but <laughs> I look at it as, as a guide, you know, and because not everybody checks all the boxes necessarily in one of those diagnostic categories, but we do need it exactly for those reasons that you're talking about and exactly why we need it for people like your daughter to get the help they need. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and anybody who's listening that doesn't have kids, uh, take my word for it. Sometimes getting that diagnosis is exactly what you're hoping for because that's the kind of key that unlocks Mm -hmm. the help Mm -hmm. that you'll need to to actually reach a better place for your child so and um, and the right help i would add too yeah yeah absolutely right Right. exactly yeah um i also so my second question was kind of related to another guest that we had on the show because so she was a um she was a coach and a therapist for for students um, and typically younger students who maybe didn't learn in quite the same way that maybe their peers did. I mean, they were Mm -hmm. quite intelligent and Mm -hmm. if they were given the right modality or maybe the right treatment in school, that yes, was different perhaps than their peers. Maybe they needed to be outside. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe they, you know, didn't like to do X, Y, Z kind of play. Maybe they wanted, you know, ABC kind of play. Like, a, you know, they, they just needed a slightly different treatment. But then when they had that, they were able to learn kind of, you know, equal or even better than their mm-hmm. peers. And so I guess mm-hmm. my question to you is, how do you think about, about that topic where some kids... Um, you know, might not necessarily, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be careful with my words here, but mm-hmm. there might not necessarily be anything wrong with them, but mm-hmm. they just maybe mm-hmm. need a different type of uh, instruction. What, what's, what's your thought on that, on that uh, possibility as well? Oh, so you mean basically presenting the same information to, to the child, but presenting it in a different way. I guess that's what you're asking, right? Yeah. So what I mean, like a child who's Mm -hmm. in a typical Mm -hmm. classroom where you have Mm -hmm. to sit down at a desk and you're looking Mm -hmm. at the, at the teacher in the front, that child Mm -hmm. might display inattentiveness, impulsivity, Mm -hmm. hyperactivity, Mm -hmm. all the classic signs Mm -hmm. of, of ADHD, but Mm -hmm. then with just a slight change in, in the way that they're being taught, all of a sudden they're able to, you know, kind of spark that creativity and it ignites their kind of, um, you know, uh, I guess it makes them more competent in line with the rest of the class. Mm-hmm. So, well, and yeah. engage with the material, exactly. I guess, more effectively, yeah. I would say, too. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
I mean, you know, look like no, no, no person, no child learns in the same exact way. I mean, that's why we have individual differences. So I think um, it is it is challenging, I, I guess, in, as a as someone in the school setting or as a teacher who wants to make sure that kids do get the information that they need to receive in order to you know learn how to think for themselves and grow up to be um uh, contributing adults to society, but it, but but with that said, not everyone does learn in the same way. So, you know, I think if it is possible to find alternatives for children in these settings, or if they need to go to a different type of school, because there's so many different types of school now: um, private schools, charter schools, um, even you know religiously based schools. Maybe they need mm-hmm. a smaller classroom. Uh, maybe even just being in a smaller classroom um, would be more beneficial to that type of child. So, you know, so I think I think we do have to figure out ways to. I guess, meet the kids where they are. But I also understand that that it's not just that, right? Because we have the institution of schools and I can appreciate that um, it, it just must be a challenge for them as well. So right. to some extent. So yeah, it's it's all kind of tricky territory um, mm-hmm, because you're trying mm-hmm. to make a story out of something so complex. And I'm talking about mm-hmm. the brain, of course. Um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. sometimes two children can display the exact same outward symptoms and they might have the exact same scores perhaps on these diagnostic tests. Again, Mm -hmm. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just kind of assuming here that this might happen. And in fact, the maybe correct treatment for these two children might be quite different. So it's, it's, um, it's definitely a struggle. And I think anybody looking to get into this field, um, kind of from whatever angle you're going to be looking at it, uh, I think has to be mindful of of these challenges, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, you're Mm -hmm. you're getting into tricky water there, especially when it uh, comes to children who really Mm -hmm. are having all their decisions made for them by their parents. Exactly. You know, exactly. Absolutely. Yep. Um, Yeah. It definitely is tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. uh, Did you want to add anything else before we moved on? No, I'm good. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I also wanted to ask about coaching because I know that it obviously is a central point to most of the listeners to the show. And mm-hmm. I know that you also offer ADHD coaching as well mm-hmm. as ADHD, um, you know, related therapy, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, what do you see as the primary difference between those two for anybody who might be unfamiliar with the difference in approach? And mm-hmm. maybe if you can, because I think examples are helpful, if you can give an example of the ideal client for each of those approaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so obviously uh, with coaching, you're not going to be diagnosing someone. Right. And um, I would also say that insurance doesn't pay for coaching, right? People have to pay out of pocket for coaching. So, and um, people can get their therapy sessions covered because that's a covered type of thing. Even if you're an out of network provider, you can submit a claim and, and whatnot. So there's that sort of basic difference, I guess, between coaching and, and therapy. And then um, also, I guess, differential between coaching and therapy, I, I would say, you know, I guess it's a little bit different because I am a psychologist and I do coaching. So I, I do, I do both. And so I can diagnose people, but I would say if I was, you know, I think it would be tricky for just for someone who has a coaching background to deal with, um, somebody who may have some severe issues, um, 
I don't know, with anxiety or depression, or they could even be more severe issues, mood instability. I Mm -hmm. think that would be um, somebody who should probably be seen by a psychologist just because they have that clinical background, you know, that more significant, heavy clinical background. Um, But then there is also overlap, I would say, between coaching and let's say cognitive behavioral therapy, because cognitive behavioral therapy is more directive. um, It's more collaborative. It gives the um, client um, or patient, if you want to talk about them in that as a therapeutic, gives them uh, skills, tasks, um, to do's, things to do, which can be similar to what you might do with someone in coaching. So there is that also overlap. And then even in therapy and coaching, I would say it would be important to talk about something like core beliefs. So am I operating with some, for example, limiting core beliefs that are not allowing me to reach my potential? Like I, I, I tell, you know, I'm telling everybody why am I not reaching my potential? Why am I not? Why I'm not, you know, and then sort of uncovering or unpacking what is that underlying core belief that is holding me back? Because most of the time we get in our own way, I feel like, um, mm-hmm. And, and then I guess if I had to differentiate the way therapy and coaching looks like, um, I guess one example is, is I have a, um, a a relatively new client. Um, She's in her early thirties and she, again, is a woman who got diagnosed later in life, um, unfortunately with ADHD. And a lot of our work is really just figuring out the basics, like organizing my life, um, figuring out um, how to buy my food, stay on task with things. Uh, You know, she figure out my new career path, not happy with her job. So where is she going next? Um, So there's a lot, you know, to unpack with that, but, but also giving her specific things that she has to do after every session. And she'll even email me the things and then um, we'll talk about them afterwards. So, so that, that is, that has more of a coaching flavor to it. And then, and then also, and then with the therapy, I guess, client, um, I'm just thinking of one that I have, Uh, she's a young adult and uh, also, I guess, moving away from these beliefs that are holding her back. Again, negative self-judgment, kind of processing the anxiety that goes with that. And then also talking about strategies to manage the ADHD, but also processing emotions. So that might be more how therapy looks, but I mean, again, for me, it's, it's, you know, I can differentiate, but, but also like, because I'm doing both, it's, it's sort of, there is a little bit of overlap for me, I feel like. So, right, right. Yeah, no, <laughs> so I don't know if that's helpful, but <laughs> I think it's an important, I think it's an important thing to mention because you're right. Somebody that only offers coaching in this context, let's say of ADHD, that's the example we're using. Um, right. Just because you're offering something in coaching doesn't mean somebody else who offers coaching as a standalone will be able to practice their their work in quite the same way because you also have that therapy background. So right. I think right. no, I think that point is very well taken, and um, right. uh, I'm I'm glad you made that distinction. Yeah. So, yeah. No problem. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. with regards to the um, coaching itself, do you? Do you often employ both with the same client or do you or do you because I've I've spoken to therapists who basically say I offer therapy, I offer coaching, but I don't mix the two with the same client. And I've uh, that's kind of the minority. Most most therapists are the other way around. They they're more than happy to kind of blend the two. Um, So what's your take on on that? 
Well, well, first I would, I would say is, is I try to meet the client where they're at. So, so basically whatever their needs are is going to be the approach that I'm going to try to take with them, which I think is an important thing to emphasize because I do think in this profession to be, to be good in this profession or, or to have a good handle on this in this profession, I think it's important to be able to be flexible and to be able to adjust. So, so I'm not so, I mean, I need to have my toolbox and my training and my theories and, and all those things, but for me to not be so rigid and so tied to one thing that then I'm trying to take that one thing and sort of put it on the person, on the client, if that makes sense. Yeah, kind of forcing um, it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I need to sort of I think this is my opinion, obviously, and this is how I look at things. I like to pull from different schools of thought, like different schools of psychology, for example. Um, I tend to lean more cognitive behavioral therapy type, but I also look at dynamics and relationships. So, uh, so I try to sort of pull that all together and try to kind of meet the client where they are. And I would say that I, I mean, some like, you know, I have some clients who are really more I guess more on the coaching side, I don't, you know, um, mm -hmm. but I would say I'm more of a combination approach type person. Right. So, because even if someone makes an appointment to see me for therapy, we're still going to talk about strategies, um, some things that they need to work on before the next session, which might sound a lot like coaching, but it's technically therapy. Right. Yeah. And so these are conversations we've had on the show uh, several times. And I, I personally find it fascinating because you know, I think everybody would agree therapy has its obvious value and then coaching mm -hmm. has its value. Mm -hmm. um, but it's interesting how different practitioners see the the appropriateness of blending the two. You know, some like to keep it. They have separate kind of back end, like accounting mm -hmm. tools and separate, mm -hmm. um, you know, software for handling each. And some mm -hmm. don't even... Like I just said, some don't even apply both to the same client. They refer out. Mm -hmm. So it's just interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and I think mm -hmm. anybody listening that's that's trying to structure their own practice, I think, can uh, can take these perspectives and, and choose for themselves how they feel mm -hmm. they should uh, how they should approach that. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, yeah. So I want to I want to end the show with a question that I like to ask pretty much everybody that comes on. I think it's I think it's important. Um, okay. What has been. It's a two-part question. I'm I'm clearly a fan of two-part questions at this point. <laughs> okay. Um, what Sorry. What has been the most rewarding aspect of the work that you've done as a clinical psychologist, and or as a coach, or just uh, just a professional in the field of helping mm -hmm. others, really? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I guess related to that, what has been the most challenging part of of the work you've done? And that could be either on the business side or on the academic side, the client side, personal. Yeah. So what, what has been kind of the high and the low of, of your experience? Well, I guess we'll start with the high because I always feel like that's a good place to start first. <laughs> okay. um, and um, I, I would say really, I, I feel like I'm very grateful because I've had so many lovely people to work with over the years. And I feel very lucky and fortunate that I've had so many just nice, genuinely nice, smart um, people who really want to make a change in their life. And, and 
change is not easy. It takes dedication, courage to really confront those old beliefs and values and say, you know, this is not my story anymore. This is an old story and it's not valid anymore. And so I feel very fortunate um, to be, to have worked with so many and still continue to work with so many just smart, lovely people who um, are really invested in making the change. And, and, and also it's just so wonderful to see the change when it's happening, I guess um, is, is part of, I guess, one of the, the highs or those are part of the highs of this career. Um, As far as the low, I I don't know if I would say it's a low, but I I do think it's challenging to manage all of the different pieces that come into play when you're managing a business like this, Um, managing boundaries with clients, not overextending yourself, right? Because we have to take care of ourselves before we can take care of any other, other people. So, so that's really important because if you want to help, you know, you want to help and, we can't, we can't save anybody, you know, we have to sort of give them the tools and arm them with the things to go out and make those changes. And then, you know, on top of all of that, you have to manage the business side of things. And, and also I'm, I'm a a supervisor too. So, um, so there's just a lot of things that you have to manage and, and not to, I guess, um, you don't want to, what's that word, that phrase, um, spread yourself too thin. That's the word I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. So you really have to make sure you're not spreading yourself too thin and to, to really be able to ground yourself. So, yeah. And I'm, I'm really glad you brought up that last part because I think so many people looking to get into whether it's private practice or their own coaching practice, they're so intent on helping others on mm-hmm. kind of being a positive force in the world. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. nowadays there's way too many of the negative uh, forces. Mm-hmm. So people are definitely looking to make their own little small dent there. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what happens eventually is that what takes up the majority of their day in that beginning stage, at least, are things that have nothing to do with psychology, things that have nothing to do yep. with helping others. It's, yep. you know, how do I build a business? Um, right. Right. Which right. is which is yeah. kind of the same across the board, almost no matter what business you start. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yep. And so yep. I that's kind of one thing that I'd like to, um, you know, remind listeners over and over again, that if you are going to get into this, great, go in head first. But just remember, mm-hmm. there is a basic level of business acumen that mm-hmm. is kind of required if you do want to have that end result of helping as many mm-hmm. people as you can. And you yeah. can't help everybody, I would add, too, mm-hmm. and coming to terms with that as well. And you're right. At the end of the day, you still have to manage a business. So yeah. it's true. Yeah. 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 All right. Totally agree. Great. Laura, right. this was really informative. Um, I think I think we covered a lot of bases here. So yep. um, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for having me. Absolutely. And I want to give listeners a chance to learn more about you and um, and about your work. So if you have any social media as well, you can share that and share your website. Yeah, so I I'm a little social media light. Um, I may be expanding into having a Facebook business page, but not at the moment. I don't have one, but I do have. Yeah, (laughs) no, I know. I'm I am on LinkedIn, of course. I'm on LinkedIn, so if you just type in my name, um, and I have a very unusual name, so it's easy to find me. Um, (laughs) But I also have a website, which is also very easy to 
to find. And it's just www.lauramugly.com and Mugly is spelled M-U-G-G-L-I. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then, you know, you can also find me on LinkedIn with that, but, but the best way is probably to just go to my website at this point and you can always reach me that way. There's a contact request form exact on the website. So it's easy. All right. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, that was, that was really, really great. I'm glad to speak to somebody who's local. You're just on 27th <laughs> street, right? Um, at least that's the address on your site. Is that, is that where you are? Yeah. I, so I'm sort of in between at the moment. Um, Miami I and do, New York, right? Yeah, I do have, I do have an office, but, um, yeah, I'm actually in Wisconsin right now. So, oh wow, um, you're really all over. <laughs> I am all over. Yes. That's, that's <laughs> so yet another benefit of going into business for yourself. See that? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So lots of flexibility there. Yes. Absolutely. So, yeah, right. definitely. All right. right. Well, thank you so much, Brandon. Thank you. I wish you the best. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Coaches Circle podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to our show just as much as we enjoyed making it. If you'd like to check out a complete listing of all of the episodes on our show, head on over to lifecoachpath.com slash podcast. See you on the next one.